Now, when we last left the Israelites, they had just sacked the city of Jericho by miraculous intervention of God. You may remember God's battle plans had been quite unorthodox. They had not included battering rams or siege works like you might normally expect in an attack of a walled city, but rather seven days marching around the city once a day for the first six days and then seven times around on the final day. And then a long blast of trumpets and a great shout from the men of war. And said the Lord, when you do all this, then the wall will fall down flat and you will march right into the midst of the city. And it was so. When God's people did just what God said, God himself did just what he said he would do. And the wall fell down flat and the Israelites went straight into the city and took the city just like God said, a reminder that God honors those who honor him. But God had said something else to the Israelites besides just giving them his unorthodox plans for getting into the city. He'd also told them once they were there not to take for themselves any of the spoil. Now, Rahab the harlot who had aided the Israelite spies was to have her life and the lives of her family members as her reward, and the silver and gold and bronze and iron were to go into the treasury of the Lord, and everything else, every possession, every article of clothing, every animal, every piece of architecture, every piece of art, every human life was placed under the ban, meaning that the Israelites were to take none of these things for themselves as spoil, but rather to utterly destroy them. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, you will see that. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now those instructions were straightforward enough, not difficult to understand, but today as the dust of the battle of Jericho settles and as the men begin to regroup and the companies begin to come back together and to prepare themselves for the next station in their conquest of the promised land, today things are going to go a little sideways for Joshua and for the ancient people of God. And we need to read about that now in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent 
So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the households which the Lord takes, shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zarahites, and he brought the family of the Zarahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. 
Father, these are grave things that we read about, and we sit here in the comfort uh, of a a temperate room um, and go home to our lunches and don't face, uh, in an immediate sense, these grave things. But I pray that you'll help us see from this passage how grave sin is, even when you don't immediately punish it the way that you did here. Help us fear to sin and love to do righteousness because of what we see in this and the next chapter in the book of Joshua. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me that this passage illustrates in remarkably memorable fashion some of the most basic moral lessons in all the Bible. And in fact, I just want to pluck up this morning three statements of moral principle from elsewhere in the scriptures and use them as my main headings for unpacking this passage. You'll find, I think, that what we learn here is taught clearly elsewhere. And the first of those statements that we should learn from this passage is simply this, you shall not covet. You shall not coven. Isn't that one of the ten basic principles for life in this world that God gave on the stone tablets at Mount Sinai? You shall not covet. You shall not crave for that which is not rightfully yours and which cannot be rightfully yours. Here's a commandment for all the ages and for all peoples and in all situations. And here was a command that applied explicitly to the precious metals and the household goods and the foods and animals and tools and clothes that were to be found in the sacked city of Jericho. We saw it in chapter 6, verse 18, didn't we? Keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban. And so it was plain and simple both in the Ten Commandments that the Israelites surely still knew quite well, and also in the specific instructions concerning the spoils of Jericho, you shall not covet. And yet what we find is that all the trouble that the Israelites encounter here in chapter 6, all the shame, all the loss of life, both in the failed battle of Ai and in God's discipline of a particular family at the end of the chapter, all the trouble that takes place in this chapter, all of the grief began with the covetousness of one man. Isn't that how Achan described his sin in verse 21? In verse 1, we learn that he took things under the ban, which was the sin that actually brought down God's judgment. But in verse 21, we learn that the reason why Achan took what he took was covetousness. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I coveted them and took them. It was covetousness that was the kindling wood for the fire that consumed Achan's body at the end of this chapter. And everything went downhill quickly once that kindling wood was lit. And so you can see just what a poisonous can of worms coveting can crack open. You may not think it's that big a deal 
to lay in your bed at night craving the setup that your neighbor and his family enjoys. You may not imagine that much bad can happen when you stare too long at his wife or when you brood for several minutes over why her husband has such a good job and why her children seem to be doing so well and why they can afford such nice vacations. But Achan stands on the pages of Scripture to warn you of just how quickly things can unravel. Now, it doesn't appear that Achan marched around Jericho for those seven days plotting out a plan for how he was going to disregard the specific command of God concerning the spoil of Jericho. He doesn't appear to have stolen these certain things, in other words, simply out of an open defiance of the commandment of God, out of a sense that who is this Joshua who can tell me what I can and can't take from the city that I'm helping to take down? That's not what happened, it doesn't seem. Achan's problem was that when he saw certain things, he allowed himself to fantasize about what it would be like to have them for himself. He coveted, and then he took. He may not have gone into Jericho intent on flouting God's law, but he came out of that city with a bunch of stuff hidden under his cloak, which he knew good and well was not his for the taking. He saw, and then he coveted, and then he stole. And then he died. Now, surely others of the Israelites saw lots of pretty things too. So the problem wasn't in what Achan saw. It was that he allowed his heart to crave that which he could not lawfully have. And so he coveted and coveted led to stealing and stealing led to a cover-up. Alistair Begg gets it. Achan's downhill degeneration strikingly by describing as digging around in the floor of his tent like a dog trying to hide a bone, desperate to conceal what he had done. But Achan couldn't conceal it, which we'll see in our next point. And even though it may be based on Achan's words of confession in verse 20, even though those words may indicate that he truly repented, he could not divert the earthly consequences of his sin. And he finishes the chapter with all of his family buried beneath another great pile of stones that the Israelites will never forget. This pile serving to remind them of the grave consequences of flouting God's law. And I say to you that it all began, this chain of events that ended with over 40 Israelites in the grave began as Joshua had warned and as Achan confessed with an inward heart of covetousness. And I just warn you against such folly, brothers and sisters. If you are craving that which God has not given you, that which you cannot lawfully have, if you're craving another person sexually, if you're craving more money and thinking inordinately about how to get it, if you look too often at your neighbor's successes and possessions and comforts and family and murmur that you don't have what she or he has, watch out because you are, in a roundabout way, first of all, showing great contempt and ingratitude toward the Lord who has given you just what he deems best. And you are also breaking one of his very plain and simple commandments. And by doing so, you're putting yourselves in harm's way, never knowing when things might spiral out of control as they did for Achan far more quickly than you can imagine. One day, this Israelite warrior is marching around the city of Jericho with all of his compatriots doing exactly what God has commanded 
And a few days later, he and his whole family are buried beneath a great heap of stones. And his foothold began to crumble with the sin of covetousness. And so, take the great biblical watchword to heart. You shall not covet. And then the second lesson of this passage is, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now again, look at Achan with his spade in his hand, digging a hole in the floor of his tent, probably very gingerly, very delicately, so as not to attract any attention from his neighbors. And he places the 200 silver coins at the bottom, and then the gold and the cape on the top. And then he fills the hole back in and pats the earth back down flat. Maybe he throws a rug over the spot to conceal the fresh earth. And all of this that he's doing in the secrecy of his tent should have been like one giant check within his conscience, shouldn't it have? At some point during this exercise, he should have come to himself and thought, what am I doing? Look at me scraping around in the ground like a criminal, trying to hide the evidence of my depravity. And that's what should happen in your heart when you find yourself sneaking around, trying to cover things up, hiding things in the house, covering up evidence of what you've done, erasing certain things from your browsing history. What has become of me? Am I now like Achan, like a criminal that cannot live his life in the daylight? Achan had an opportunity when that spade was in his hand to reverse his course and to come out into the light, and maybe things would have turned out differently. I don't know that for sure, of course, but maybe if Achan had confessed his sin before God had to lay his finger upon it, maybe things would have been different for Achan and his family. But Achan didn't do that. Either his conscience was already so seared that he didn't receive any check in it when he was jamming his spade into the ground inside his tent, or if he did receive that check, he didn't heed it. And so he went forward with his plan And he hid the bar of gold and he hid the bag of silver and the beautiful mantle from Shinar in a hole beneath the tent. And he hoped like the Dickens that no one saw him coming out of Jericho's rubble with them in tow and that no one noticed the sound of the spade scraping against the dirt and that no one would question him someday when he cautiously took items out of hiding and tried to figure out what he was going to do with them. But here's the thing. It should have occurred to him far more strikingly than it apparently did that whether anyone else saw what he did the almighty saw it for as the author of hebrews would later write there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do or in the words of king solomon the eyes of the lord are in every place watching the evil and the good And so God surely saw what Achan did. And God saw the inward covetousness that preceded it. And God knew exactly how many pieces of silver were in that bag and how much the gold weighed and where the mantle came from and where it was all buried. And God has a way, as Moses pointed out in Numbers chapter 32, God has a way of bringing our sins out into the open and bringing about discipline for them. Be sure your sin will find you out. And that was certainly true in Achan's life. He could have dug that hole 30 feet deep and God would have still known about it and God would have still brought Achan's sins out into the light. Because you see, it wasn't even the noise of the digging 
or the disturbed plot of the earth in the middle of his living room floor that gave Achan away, was it? God used a method to point out the sinner in the camp, which, like his method for toppling Jericho, was a little bit unorthodox, and which, had God not explicitly commanded it, would not have been an advisable way for Joshua to solve this whodunit. So don't resort to the method of casting lots when you need to figure out which child broke the lampshade. But in this case, the casting of lots was God's chosen method. And they narrowed the field down from tribe to family to household to individual, and the lot fell exactly in the right place because God is sovereign and because he was intent on revealing Achan's sin. And I just say to you, let this be a warning to you. God may not reveal your sin using exactly the same method. He may not reveal it so publicly always as he did with Achan's. The earthly consequences of your sins may not always be so severe. But if you're God's child, if you're loved by the Lord, you should know that God will not allow your sin to be hidden forever. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so if you've been busy in recent days at the crafty spade work of covering up your sins and hiding them and trying to pretend that all is well, cease and desist today. Cease and desist. Now that's not to say that every sin you ever commit has to be publicly confessed before a whole gathering of people, but it is to say that for every sin you must repent before God and not try to avoid him on the subject. And some of us need to do that. Stop avoiding God and just admit where we've gone wrong. And it is to say also that you must return the silver, so to speak. It is to say, in other words, that when your sin has harmed another person... You should confess it to them and you should make restitution to them as much as you can. And it's also to say that if the sin is a recurring temptation, you should come out into the light of accountability and find a faithful brother or sister or two to whom you can confess your weakness and who will regularly dig around in your tent, so to speak, who will regularly probe you concerning this particular sort of sin that you've admitted is a struggle for you. If you refuse these things, however, if you refuse to repent before God and to make things right with others and to seek the necessary accountability in your life, if you refuse to bring your sins out into the open in what ways are necessary for you, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure that God will put his finger on your sins and make you come to terms with him even if that means pain or discipline or embarrassment for you. And all of this, if you're one of his own, all of this if you do genuinely know Christ. If you don't know Christ, God may bring some of your sins to light in this life where you have an opportunity to repent of them. But if you don't know Christ, he'll certainly bring them out in the great judgment where it will be too late for you to learn from his discipline and when all that will await you is eternal judgment. And so I urge you, whether you're a long-time Christian or perhaps just being convicted right now that you need the mercy that only Christ can give. Whoever you are this morning, I urge you not to repeat the folly of Achan, not to attempt to hide your sin. 
And I urge you, too, not to try and bury the conviction that you feel about it just now under the dirt of so many of life's distractions. Confess your sin today. Repent of your sin today. Bring it out into the light today in whatever ways are necessary. Don't wait for God's lot to fall to you unpleasantly. If God is convicting you this morning, he's putting his finger on your sin gently today by means of this passage and this message. And you take him up on his goodness and run to Christ who died for sinners and who is ready to redeem even the worst Achans and whose blood cleanses us from all sin, says the Apostle John, if we walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you walk in the light. Come out into the light. But if you refuse, be sure that your sin will find you out, as it did with Achan. And now in the third place, this passage not only teaches us of the folly of covetousness and that our sins will find us out, but it also reminds us of those famous words of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now that couplet of God's promise comes into bold relief here in Joshua chapter 7 and in the two chapters that bookend it. Because we saw in chapter 6 that when Israel honored the Lord, when they obeyed his instructions to the letter and marched around Jericho, just like he said, and blew the trumpets, just like he said, and shouted aloud, just like he said, when the Israelites honored the Lord outside Jericho's walls, God honored them by doing just like he said concerning their capture of the city. Those who honor me, I will honor But then the flip side of that coin is that those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And we see that in full color, not only in the way Achan lost his life, but in the way his family did as well, and in the way the Israelites were defeated by an inferior force in the little town of Ai. It shouldn't have been a problem for the Israelites to have taken this city. Indeed, the spies came back from their reconnaissance in verse 3 and said it would only take two or 3,000 men to capture little Ai. Now, we might read that verse, verse 3, where the spies considered Ai an easy conquest and wonder if there's a lesson here about pride and overconfidence and lack of reliance upon the Lord. And maybe there is. Maybe the spies should have said something more like, with the Lord's help, we can take the city. But that's not the primary lesson here. Because the reason God gives to Joshua for the failure at Ai is not overconfidence or prayerlessness, but sin in the camp concerning things under the ban. And isn't it interesting that the sin of one man was accounted by God as guilt on the whole nation? Did you pick that up, for instance, in verse 1? Achan was the one and evidently the only one who had taken for himself items that were under the ban, but the text says in verse 1 that the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. And therefore, at the end of the verse, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. And we see the outfleshing of that when the sons of Israel go up to Ai. It was not merely Achan who fled, but 3,000 foot soldiers fled before their enemies, and 36 of them fell slain outside of Ai's gates. 
And then God speaks again in verse 11 about the sin of Israel, not specifically Achan. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And so do you see? The sin of one man brought down guilt and brought down judgment upon the whole nation. Now sometimes we ask, why was it that Achan's family was executed along with him when it was Achan alone who was implicated in the sin? And it's not an easy thing for us to read about Achan's children being stoned for their father's foolishness. But if we're going to ask that question, we have to note that God dealt in the same way, not only with Achan's family, but with the army that went up to Ai and with 36 men of them who did not return. They died because of Achan's sin too. And I have to be honest and say that I think this is one of those places at which God's ways are past finding out, as the King James renders Romans eleven thirty three. We can theorize as to why God counted the sin of Achan as guilt among the whole nation of his people and why God commanded the execution of Achan and his children together for the sin simply of the father. We can theorize about why God may have done it that way, but I don't think God gives an account for his actions here as though he has to defend himself against our ideas of what God should do. And I don't think that we do much good trying to find a way to make this passage more palatable to our own sense of equity. We're not told why God accounted everyone else guilty for Achan's sin, but we are told that God did it. And they were all lightly esteemed because of it. So this adds a bit of a sub-point to the main point of this heading. The main point, remember, is those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. But a sub-point under that is that sometimes such judgments fall, such light esteem falls on a whole company of people because of the actions of one of them. Now, God doesn't always do it that way. And in fact, in Jeremiah 31, he makes it clear, at least as far as direct judgments are concerned, that he will no longer in the new covenant do what he sometimes did in the old and what happened to Achan's wife and children. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And so we would be incorrect, it seems to me, to enact church discipline on a whole family, for instance, because of the sins of the Father. There is some change in the New Testament era, but at the same time, it's still patently true that in more indirect ways, the sins of a father or of a mother or of a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a church member can still bring down great difficulty on the rest of the camp in which they live. When there is sin in the camp, there are still corporate effects that can harm the whole family or the whole church. Those who despise the Lord will be lightly esteemed, and often the consequences will spill over onto those who reside with them in the camp. And you and I could give plenty of examples, I'm sure, of how we have seen that to be so. And we need to remember both of these facts We need, when we choose to ignore God's law and when we refuse to repent of our sins, to remember what great difficulty we may bring down on our own heads. And we need to reckon with how the consequences of our sins may splash over onto other people as well. And so I ask you 
if there's any sin in the camp this morning. Anything that you know that you're engaged in, some immorality, dishonesty, underhandedness in business, theft, undealt with addiction, anger, bitterness, covetousness. Is there anything you're engaged in about which even after the last point about your sins finding you out, you're still hardening your heart? If you continue in it, you'll be lightly esteemed by the Lord. And if you continue to bring sin and to harbor sin and to coddle sin within the camp of your family or within the camp of your church family, how might the light esteem which is coming your way splash over onto the rest of us in ways that would make you so ashamed? What kind of embarrassment or hurt might your wife have to deal with, man, if you refuse to put that particular sin away? What kind of straits, ladies, might your husband find himself in if you refuse to stop doing what you're doing? How might your children be scarred, moms and dads, by the way that you behave toward them or in front of them? How might your parents' hearts break children or their good names be sullied if you continue down the path of selfishness that you may currently be on? And how might the testimony of the church be damaged and her witness in this community hindered if there is unrepentant sin in the camp. If your neighbors know what sort of person you really are, and if they associate that sort of sin or that sort of spiritual laziness with the name of your church, or worse, with the name of Jesus, those who despise God will be lightly esteemed, and that should be warning enough, but all the more so when we remember that the backlash created by our sin often sprays its poison and paints its scarlet letters onto many other people who are in the camp with us. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now, we're running more on time than I wanted to, but I want to point out also that when the Israelites rooted out the sin in their midst, when they honored the Lord by dealing appropriately with Achan, they found themselves back in the honor side of that promise. I don't want to make a great deal of comment on it, but let's just read how the Lord was once again with the Israelites in chapter 8 because they honored him at the end of chapter 7. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. He commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out to meet us at the first, we will flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing before us as at the first. So we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. If you continue reading on, you'll see that they carry out this plan, 
and that God gives them the city. And then when we come to verse 30, we read, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Now a couple of things briefly. There's a good deal in this chapter that we read and that we didn't read about the strategy that Joshua employed in this second advance against Ai, the ruse and the ambush and the fire and so on. And of course, uh, we are also informed that Joshua took a great many more men with him this time around. And all that is important and is there for a reason. But none of that strategy and none of the massing of troops explains why the battle went differently this second time. The reason the battle went differently this time around is because in verse 1, before Joshua had massed his troops or announced any battle plans, the Lord had declared that he had given the city into their hand. And so it wasn't ultimately Joshua's strategy that won the day, though God surely used that strategy, but the strategy wasn't the key. The key was that God blessed his people this time around in a way that he didn't the last time. And he blessed them this time. He was with them once more in chapter 8 because they had dealt with the sin in the camp at the end of chapter 7. That's not stated explicitly in chapter 8, but the implication is clear back in chapter 7, verse 13, when God says, I won't be with you anymore until you deal with this problem. When Achan despised the Lord, Israel was lightly esteemed. But when they honored him by dealing with the sin in the camp, the Lord honored those who honored him. And then just notice at the end of chapter 8 that this series of events where they had been reminded of the consequences of honoring or dishonoring the Lord, notice at the end of the chapter that after this series of events, there seems to have been a renewed sense of awareness and zeal about being intentional to honor the Lord and to know his word. After the embarrassment of Ai and the execution of Achan and the restoration of God's blessing, there are sacrifices in verses 30 and 31 and a new copy of the Ten Commandments chiseled out in verse 32 and a great gathering in verses 33 through 35 at which Joshua reads aloud the entirety of the first five books of Moses which makes me not feel so bad about going a little long with my sermon today. But do you see what happens here? Israel had learned first in a triumphant way in chapter 6 and then in a very painful way in chapter 7 and then in a triumphant way again in chapter 8. They had learned the importance of honoring the Lord in all that we do. 
And now at the end of the chapter, there's a bit of revival in the camp and a renewed sense of zeal for the things of God. And may it be so among us. May the conviction and the hard lessons that this passage has to teach us and the way we see God's blessing when we appropriate those lessons in our lives bring about in our homes and in the camp that is Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church a renewed sense of zeal for honoring the Lord in everything that we do. Now, before I close, there's one more exceedingly valuable nugget that needs to be dug up from the soil in this person of Joshua. And to get at it, I just need to remind you of the shudder and the sense of incongruity that we feel when we see how God punishes Achan's family and how God holds all Israel guilty for the sins of just one man. That's hard to swallow. This is one of those places in the Bible where people say, why did God do this? Is this what God is like? Because what God does here seems like just the opposite of what we would consider just. Now, as I said, God is not beholden to our concepts of justice, and I want to emphasize that clearly. And yet, if we think about it deeply at all, we find ourselves wrestling with how this can be, how the actions of one man can bring down judgment on his whole family and on his whole nation. And with those feelings of consternation in mind, I want you to think before we close about how God has the same sort of arrangement with you and with me, only in reverse. Do you see in this passage that Achan is like the anti-Jesus? Here's a whole nation of people, all condemned by the actions of one man who in God's economy represents them all. Achan is on a much smaller scale something like Adam, whose singular sin committed by a singular man brought death and guilt and judgment upon the entire human race. But didn't God in reverse fashion make just the same sort of arrangement with Jesus? In the same way that one man, whether Adam or Achan, brought death and guilt and judgment upon a whole host of people without any respect to their complicity in his actions and without any individual demerit in themselves, so also one man, namely Jesus, has brought life and grace and forgiveness upon the whole company of his people without any respect to our complicity in his actions and without any individual merit in ourselves. And so Achan is simply the anti-Jesus, or better, Jesus is the anti-Achan, or the last Adam, as Paul calls him. And I want you to see his face in the reverse negative that is this portrait of Achan. All that is dark in Achan is light in Jesus. All that is backward in Achan is right in Christ. And so when you read Joshua 7 and find yourself consternated and surprised and maybe a little bit dumbfounded that God would punish all these people based on the actions of only one man, when you read this passage and when you feel those feelings of how can this be, I want you to remind yourself how much more dumbfounding, how much more surprising, how much more un accounted for by human reason it is that God would save and forgive and redeem all of these undeserving people based on the actions of just one man Jesus those who honor me I will honor declares the Lord in 1 Samuel 2:30 that's one of the great teachings of the bible and certainly of this chapter and it stands as far as it is able to take us 
And yet such a promise, profound as it is, cannot take us all the way to ultimate honor in God's sight, can it? We can't simply rely on 1 Samuel 2.30 as our ultimate hope, can we? Because none of us has honored God as we ought. Certainly not in such a way as to garner to ourselves eternal life or to be declared righteous in God's sight. And often, not even enough so as to receive many of the earthly blessings that God grants. And so when it comes to our ultimate hopes of receiving honor in God's sight, we have to rely on an even more profound promise of God. Namely that because Christ has honored the Lord and that perfectly, He receives all honor in the Father's sight. And that if we are found in Christ, united to Him by faith, well then we get to live our entire lives in the overflow of all that honor that Jesus, our anti-Achan, has merited on our behalf. For, Paul says, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous.